Welcome to Investment Magazine's new podcast series, The Future of Super. These podcasts are an in-depth series of conversations with key decision makers, leaders, and industry stakeholders at a time when the system is being challenged over its very purpose, as well as its efficiency and its ability to deliver. We explore critical topics for executives responsible for governance, for operations, and for outcomes. We address vital issues relevant to the future of Australia's retirement savings system. Please visit investmentmagazine.com.au or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. AIA Australia is a leading life and wellbeing specialist with nearly 50 years experience and a commitment to help Australians live healthier, longer, better lives. Visit aia.com.au to find out more. Hello and welcome. I'm Stuart Hawkins from Investment Magazine. Today we have with us two gentlemen who need no introduction. The Federal Member for Goldstein, Victoria, Mr Tim Wilson, who is also serving as Chair of the House of Representatives Standing Committee on Economics. He's been highly vocal, at times critical about Australia's superannuation system. But we must remember that one of the pillars of his last election campaign was retirement security. And we also have with us renowned economist Saul Eslake. Among other things, he's a member of the International Conference of Commercial Bank Economists. He's also a member of the panel of expert advisors to Australia's Parliamentary Budget Office. Gentlemen, welcome. Welcome very much. And thank you very much for your time and agreeing to have this conversation. That's a pleasure. Fantastic. Look, today the chat is all about the future of super. Now, I'd like to start by posing a question to both of you. It's been 30 years since superannuation began in its modern form. So we need to ask, is it time? Do we need to revisit its fundamental purpose? Now, while we have the Your Future, Your Super legislation passed through the parliamentary process, did it go far enough? Do we want to see further changes? If so, why and why now? Now, Mr. Wilson, perhaps given it's your party's reform, let's let's start with you. What, what, what are your feelings on this? Well, I think where we should start with is by actually having a defined purpose for superannuation because it isn't totally clear. It seems to have multiple different objectives, some of which um, may be um, in contradiction to each other, or at least in terms of the, the core purpose. And, you know, from my perspective, the purpose of superannuation should be uh, to uh, enable Australians to be able to retire with dignity and, of course, uh, and have an income in retirement and the sole purpose is ultimately um, to displace, uh, not to abolish just for clarity, but to displace the pension if people can be independent of means, whereas instead we've got objectives about it being part of uh, capital growth for the country and all those things. Now, those all might be byproducts, but in the end, if you don't have a clear purpose about what the objective is, uh, then you'll have um, a, a compromise uh, and people will try to achieve lots of different things um, in the process. And, of course, the your super, your future legislation, more than anything else, is designed to focus more transparency in the system uh, to enable people to obviously, one, not have multiple accounts needlessly where they lose money to fees and insurances that they never sought to pay for, uh, to address some of the issues around financial disengagement 
and of course also to make sure there's transparency so members' money is not being used frivolously for um, needless marketing. Uh, you know, there's about half a billion dollars was spent in the past five years on advertising and marketing for a compulsory product. So um, it's it's a question about whether uh, what what is the purpose now, let alone setting up an alternate purpose. And there's many other reforms that I'd like to see to shift it much more clearly back into people taking ownership and empowerment and control over their retirement income more than anything else. Yeah, we we, we will get to those reforms a little bit later. But um, Mr. Eslake, do you have a comment at this point? Well, I think all public policy should have a clear stated purpose, Um, preferably not just simply winning the next election, as many public policies would appear to. Whether that needs to be entrenched in legislation, I'm not sure, but I'm not a legislator, so perhaps I don't attach as much importance to those things as people who do help to pass legislation do. Um, I agree that the primary purpose of any retirement income system should be to ensure the provision of adequate retirement incomes to as many people as possible. And I think Australia's compulsory superannuation system has served that objective pretty well. Uh, I'm of the view, as we've discussed before, Stuart, that the 9.5% compulsory contribution rate, which we've now had for some time, is sufficient to ensure an adequate retirement income for uh, someone who works and earns at least average weekly earnings throughout their working lives. And while not everybody fits that description, and in particular, the compulsory super system as we now have it, doesn't deliver an adequate income in retirement for a significant proportion of women. Uh, But I don't think the solution to that is to increase the compulsory contribution rate further. So at least in that respect, I think the compulsory superannuation system has achieved its primary objective, and we need to ensure that it continues to do that. Um, Another objective which was articulated at the time when the scheme was introduced was to increase Australia's national saving and hence to reduce what at the time and for some time afterwards were persistent large current account deficits that were seen at the time as leading to a potentially unsustainable and risky build-up of foreign debt. And now, uh, some 30 years almost after the inauguration of the scheme, not purely as a result of having had that scheme, we nonetheless find Australia running surprisingly large and consistent current account surpluses and building up a significant volume of international equity assets, which helps to reduce the risks associated with our still large foreign debt. So while that may not have been the primary objective of the scheme, it was certainly part of the thinking behind it. And it's also therefore been quite successful in that regard. Um, Some of the reforms that are in the Your Super, Your Future legislation, as I understand it, are certainly, I think, worthy of support. Um, I'm glad the provision that would have allowed the Treasurer to direct superannuation funds investments has been removed. I would have thought that would have represented uh, an unconscionable 
interference in private investment decisions for a party that professes a belief in small government and in free markets. And I suspect Mr Wilson might have been uncomfortable with it as well, even if his commitment to party discipline wouldn't have allowed him to say that in the way that I just did. Um, Yes, I take his point about uh, possibly restraining the ability of superannuation funds to engage in marketing expenses that members haven't approved of, although I note in passing that the taxes I pay are compulsory, but that doesn't stop the government from spending a lot of those tax dollars on marketing exercises. The same is true of the compulsory health insurance premiums that I have to pay lest if I don't I have to pay a higher rate of Medicare levy and health insurance funds spend a lot of money on marketing without asking my permission or that of other members. So I'm not necessarily persuaded that superannuation funds ought to be singled out for special treatment in that particular regard. Um, Mr. Wilson, I, I think I probably should give you a chance to to respond to some of the points that um, uh, Mr. Eslake has made. Sure, good idea. Well, there's a fundamental difference, of course, between a compulsory system of superannuation uh, and how people spend their money, uh, spend uh, other people's money and, for instance, the government. The government is elected, whether we agree or disagree with the government of the day, whereas, of course, the board's particular aren't of superannuation funds aren't elected and members don't have a voice in the selection and their priorities that flow from it. So there's a high degree of accountability that is necessary as part uh, of the system because, one, it's compulsory, people have limited control and, of course, there's no um, no capacity to ultimately affect. In fact, it was only relatively recently that these funds even had to have annual general meetings or equivalent where they could actually report back to members and ask questions. So <coughs> the inject transparency in a compulsory system is very important, um, particularly when there is just a complete imbalance of power between fund members and, of course, the fund um, uh, trustees and, and managers uh, who ultimately make most of the, uh, the decisions. Now, this is a, a related question to what we've just been talking about, but um, and it's something that I'd like Mr. Eslake to to kick off with, and then um, we'll, we'll we'll come back to you, Mr. Wilson. But can we look at the balance? The balance of the three pillars of retirement in Australia: home ownership, government pensions, and super. Is that balance right? Are the settings right? If not, why not and what should they be? So, Mr. Eslake, if you can kick this off, because I, I, I know that Mr. Wilson has some fairly strong opinions on this. Well, let me start by making the observation that it's long been an unstated assumption of Australia's retirement income systems, both before and after the introduction of compulsory superannuation, that the vast majority of people will own their own homes outright in retirement and that for the small proportion of the population as it used to be who weren't able to achieve that objective, there would be social housing, which they could rent for a fixed proportion of their relatively low income, so that either way, nearly all Australians would be uh, housed at relatively low cost to them in their retirement years. But That assumption is coming under increasing challenge from declining home ownership rates, 
the home ownership rate in Australia peaked in 1966 at about 72%, and it's been declining ever since to the point where at the 2016 census, it was lower than at any time since the census of 1954. And for people under the age of 45, the home ownership rate is lower than it has been at any census since the census of 1947. And I suspect when we get the results of the census that's going to be conducted in a couple of months' time, uh, we'll get those results around this time next year, they will show an even further decline in the rate of home ownership. So although that hasn't really affected those people who are in retirement now or who are going to reach their retirement age in the next five to 10 years, after that, we're going to see a significant number of people reaching their retirement age with probably never having owned a home, or if they do own a home, having a significant amount of mortgage debt still outstanding on it, which they will then quite rationally use to pay off their mortgage and then become dependent on the pension. So um, the decline in home ownership rates is a fundamental challenge to those three pillars, pillars of our retirement income system, as you described. And in addition, of course, it's no longer the case that a significant proportion of those who, for whatever reason, have been unable to attain home ownership during their working lifetimes, a proportion of the population that's now trending upwards, uh, can be accommodated in social housing where they pay a fixed proportion of their incomes in rent. Instead, we're seeing a, and we will see a significant increase over the next 30 years in the proportion of retirees who are reliant on the private rental housing market for uh, for their accommodation with all the risks of both insecure tenure and the prospect of rapid increases in rents at particular times, you know, awaiting them at a time when they're on low income. So, you know, I think that's a significant problem. I suspect that Mr. Wilson and I will disagree on the solutions to that and we'll no doubt thresh that out in a respectful way. In my view, the reason for the decline in Australia's home ownership rate over the last 50 years is because during that period, governments of both political persuasions have moved away from the policies that governments of both political persuasions pursued between the late 1940s and the late 1960s, which was of boosting supply and avoiding inflating demand. But ever since John Howard, as president of the New South Wales Young Liberals in 1963, managed to convince Bob Menzies to promise a first homeowners grant at the 1963 election, ever since then, government policy has gradually drifted towards inflating demand, in particular by giving would-be home buyers more cash that they can then spend more on more expensive houses. And uh, federal, state and local government policies have moved away from boosting supply towards, in the case of state and local governments, particularly in New South Wales, restraining the growth in supply. And uh, most of the policies that have been proposed and implemented by governments, again, of both political persuasions, over the last 20 years have consisted of uh, giving people more cash, to spend on houses, whether through ever-increasing first-time owner grants, boosts and so forth, or stamp duty concessions, or allowing them to draw on other sources of funds in order to uh, pay bigger deposits, or 
as we've seen most recently, allowing people to buy deposit uh, to buy houses with very small deposits and having the government underwrite the remainder of it to get it up to 20%. And we've got 50 years of history, which tells us, I think, quite unequivocally that anything that allows people to spend more on housing than they otherwise would results not in more people owning housing, but in the housing we've got becoming more expensive. And in my view, if we want to arrest the deterioration in home ownership rates, which I certainly want to do, uh, not least so that people can rely either on their superannuation savings or the age pension in retirement, then what we've got to do is walk away from policies that serve only to inflate the demand for housing and replace them with policies that boost the supply of housing. And I think if we do that, then we can restore the three pillars of our retirement aid income system without also having to tax future generations much more in order to provide a more extensive and expensive age pension. If we don't do that, then the trends that we're observing at the moment and have been observing for more than 15 years uh, are going to become much more intense and much more politically challenging over the next 25 years. Tim, I think this is probably time for you to jump in here. That's all right. I'm, I'm quite relaxed about uh, getting Sol's reflections because he might be shocked how much we agree uh, on one point because what we've actually seen is as the more more stimulatory measures to drive demand have gone up um, from government first home buyer schemes removal of things like first uh, stamp duty for first homes um, of course it's been concurrent with the amount of time we've been taking more and more of people's capital away from them particularly when they're at a lower income earning stage of their life and we're having to replace it with government support instead so I actually think we're in this perverse scenario where we're constantly pumping money in from the tax Taxpayer, and ultimately, most of the benefit actually goes to a private gain. And my argument is not that we should do things to needlessly stimulate demand. Um, it's merely to get financial decisions in the right priority of people's lives. Um, the reality is, uh, up until 1992, it was utterly uncontroversial, utterly uncontroversial to say that people should save for a deposit to buy a home first and then to start saving for their retirement once they have got themselves into a home. What we've engaged in is a form of economic social engineering where we have actually reversed that. And we need to understand we've not just economically uh, uh, re-engineered that priority to no longer match people's stages of life, um, but we've also enabled super funds to then go off and use other people's savings, super savings, to go and buy housing so they're competing against their own superannuation funds. Now, I think that is utterly perverse. Sol's 100% right. The solution to um, addressing some of the problems around cost of housing is one around demand. Secondly, it's around things like planning and zoning. The Reserve Bank has showed that um, up to a third of the costs of a new apartment, for instance, in Sydney, 25, I think, percent in Melbourne, is driven simply by planning and zoning. There are lots of factors that influence the price of housing. But there's only one policy that takes money away from people at the time they need that money, often when it's the a significant share of their disposable income, while they're also paying rent to save for a deposit. And all I want is decisions, financial decisions to be made against people's strip stream, strip stream of life. Because we know full well that uh, for every year that people are not owning their own home, they're more likely to be paying rent. Um, and of course, uh, as Sol correctly points out, uh, what's happening is people are now retiring 
with a mortgage still or a significant mortgage. So they're super still going on to home ownership. Um, uh, it's just a question of at what stage of life. And I'd like to see people being able to access their own money. So I agree, remove a lot of the government fuel incentive schemes and make people enable people to use their own money to buy their own home earlier which is invariably cheaper, which reduces their dependence on rent uh, and then at least gets them onto the property ladder so that they can go through their different stages of life. Because that's the only basis in which you'll actually get a system that's in balance. Even Paul Keating recognised there was a trade-off between home ownership and superannuation. And it's just about getting that slipstream right so people can make those critical and important decisions. So just very quickly, how would you structure a system that um, as it, 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 this is relating to your home first, super second. How would you, yep. how would you structure that? Well, there are lots of different ways you can do it, and I'm actually I'm literally today doing some research in some of the different models that work overseas because it's not as though it's innovative. There are other countries that do it too. New Zealand provides a pathway for people to use their superannuation for a house. Now, uh, New Zealand has very big problems around their housing um, market at the moment. So it is absolutely true that we've got to do things to make sure it doesn't become an artificial drive towards inflating prices. But as Saul no doubt understands as well, there's a difference between how people spend other people's money versus how they spend their own money. Uh, And uh, and uh, But other countries like Canada do it as well, where you can use your money in super to buy a home, but then you have to pay it back within a time frame of, say, 15 years. So, or it could potentially be held as part of the structure of your superannuation as well in the, as the equity. So, there's plenty of ways it can be done that addresses the fundamental problem that people have. But I think we also need to get out of the pie in the sky mentality, which is that if we just increase supply, suddenly we're going to see a, re- a rapid reduction in the price of housing. I don't believe that's the case. Uh, and I think that there are lots of problems with the fact that we're not going to, it's going to be very difficult to do anything other than get housing stabilised. So unless we want to acknowledge reality that housing is becoming more expensive, people are going to need more access to their own capital to be able to get in at an earlier rate. Uh, then uh, we're just going to make it very, very hard by obsessing over super and the need to prioritise retirement savings over home ownership uh, that what you're actually doing is selling out people's retirement and their working life and home ownership as well. Fine. Can we move on, um, only because we're going to run out of time, but to the, the the super guarantee and really... Only in so much as it pertains to stagnant wage wage growth. Now, I think this is where Mr. Eslake and Mr. Wilson, both you both agree with each other on this one, I think, but correct me if I'm wrong, um, that increasing the super guarantee just isn't going to help. I know, Saul, you said earlier that that, that would be the case. Um, but could you just talk us through a little bit more as to as to why that is the case? And then we'll, yeah. we'll get um, Mr. Wilson's opinion on that as well. Yeah, sure. So, as we've discussed before, Stuart, um, until a couple of years ago, I had taken more or less as a given that the more people were required to contribute to super, the better off both they individually and the country as a whole would be. But my view on that was changed by a report that was issued by Brendan Coates of the Grattan Institute showing, I thought persuasively, that a 9.5% rate of SGC contributions over the course of a working lifetime was enough to meet the OECD benchmark of 70% of income during working as a retirement as income during retirement and that increasing the contribution rate to 12 
12.5% as currently envisaged, would produce the, I think, perverse situation where many people would actually be earning more in retirement than they were when they were working. And why would you want to do that? What Brendan Coates' report also showed is that increasing the compulsory super contribution rate wasn't costless. You know, people always focus on the saving in the age pension that that's supposed to produce without looking at the significant erosion of revenue that accrues from the highly concessional taxation treatment of contributions to super, earnings within super funds, and income that is paid out of super funds to people once they reach the uh, or pass the preservation age. And that when you put the two of those together, it was far from clear that the impact of further increasing the compulsory superannuation contribution rate on the budget bottom line was as favourable as it had been claimed or indeed favourable at all. And while, as I said before, the compulsory super system does have some significant holes in it, in particular for women, you know, who on average retire with up to 40% less in their super than men do, it's not at all clear to me that the solution to that is simply requiring those people who do contribute through their working lives to contribute more. We need a different solution to what is a very real problem. So in my view, uh, as it now is, uh, raising the compulsory superannuation contribution rate is unnecessary. But on top of that, I think it's also very clear that increases in the superannuation contribution rate come largely at the expense of or as a trade-off for wage increases. And it's important to remember that that was the original purpose when superannuation was uh, negotiated between Bill Kelty on behalf of the ACTU and Paul Keating as Treasurer and then as Prime Minister. It was intentionally meant to be a way of containing what at the time were perceived to be dangerously inflationary wage pressures. And even Paul Keating has conceded that on at least one occasion in a formal lecture, even though he's argued against the proposition in many of his other public statements. Most recently, of course, the Secretary of the Treasury, Dr Stephen Kennedy, has said that on Treasury's calculations, about 80% of the increase in superannuation contributions is absorbed in the form of lower wages. And he said that's one of the reasons why Treasury has been as conservative as people think it has been or pessimistic as people think it has been uh, with regard to the forecasts about wages growth that were incorporated in the recent 2021-22 federal budget. And we're in circumstances where a whole spectrum of opinion, not just the usual suspects such as the ACTU, but also the Governor of the Reserve Bank, among others, suggest that you know what the economy needs at the moment is a faster rate of wages growth than the rates that we have seen over the last four or five years. And it would seem to me and to many others that increasing the compulsory superannuation contribution rate would stand in direct conflict with an objective that a very wide spectrum of respected economic opinion thinks is desirable. Mr Wilson, your thoughts? Well, everything uh, that Soldier said there was 100% right. I mean, it takes extraordinary achievement to get the Australian Council of Social Services, the Treasury, the Grattan Institute, 
just about everybody who doesn't have a naked vested interest in um, increasing compulsory superannuation saying this is both coming at the expense of wages but and, and this is the point that I so I'll touched on but it, it's so important to understand is it heavily favours the rich because of course the more money you can give to superannuation the greater tax concessions uh, you get as a consequence um, and so we're seeing a lot of people who um, uh, who uh, wealthier people essentially become richer as a consequence of compelling people to be able to contribute more because they get much more of the benefit. And principally, uh, the other point that uh, it goes back to the bridge with the other conversation is what we see is a rise in the number of particularly women retiring. And yes, they have lower superannuation balances than men, but there's another problem associated with it, which is um, that we, uh, we're seeing a large number of women who are retiring and not owning their own home. And of course, at, in a lot of those in everybody's circumstance, of course, different, but particularly, for instance, where you have women who might divorce, who may then need access to capital. They're having more and more of their capital consumed into their superannuation and locked away from them from the exact time of life where if they had 20 or 30 years to pay off a home, they would actually be better off being owning a home and getting the pension they would having, say, another $100,000 in superannuation, which would just get eaten away in rising rents. So there are plenty of reasons why increasing the CSG uh, has a marginal effect. And, and the data on this is, is actually surprisingly clear. The Callahan Review goes through this extensively in addition to Brendan Coates in his report, which I also agree is a very good report and quite persuasive. And basically, we, we know the superannuation system has gone from $2.8 billion in 1992 to $3.1 or thereabouts today. But despite everything, the actual decrease in the demand on the pension hasn't shifted that much. Callaghan outlines that it's dropped from 67% to 65%. So on one side, you've basically got a 1,400% increase in savings for a 2% drop on the demand on the pension. And so to take more of people's um, disposable income away today... Uh, and wage growth today um, for what is, Sol correctly made this point as well, uh, that people may actually end up retiring with a better standard of living than when they were working, is very perverse uh, and has no clear benefit except perhaps to build up a capital stock if you want to start an inter, a hugely intergenerationally unjust structure where so the, uh, the economic opportunity that you'll have in your life will be increasingly dependent on the savings uh, that your parents are able to inherit to you uh, later on. So I think there's actually a huge stru socially, structurally problematic issue, not just in terms of equality, but also in, in terms of artificially structuring inequality in our society. At AIA, our dream is to champion Australia to be the healthiest and best protected nation in the world. To achieve this, we are continuously innovating to develop and deliver customer-led life, health and well-being propositions that help people live healthier, longer, better lives. To find out more, visit aia.com.au. All right, can we pivot now to look at another area Mr Wilson has commented on, and that's how super funds spend their members' money. Now, obviously, under their fiduciary duty, they need to measure what they're spending and prove that it's bringing outcome for members. Now, what's your opinion, Mr. Wilson, on how well they are doing that? And are there areas you see as problematic at the moment? Well, the clearest uh, concern that I have is the one, the amount degree of transparency and accountability of how people's money is being spent, as I outlined before. It's only been a past couple of years where essentially super funds have been compelled to have some sort of AGM system, particularly 
when directors are not able to be elected by uh, and the fund members. Uh, so I think that's a critical part um, of the conversation. But what we've we've started to calculate, including through the House Economics Committee uh, I chair, which is how much are these funds spending on things like advertising and marketing and you know in the middle of a global pandemic at the moment uh, you can go just about anywhere in any capital city and everywhere you'll see advertisements for superannuation funds now that's partly because they've obviously got access to cash i suspect it's because advertising is very cheap but when we actually ask questions like what is the value in return for these advertising campaigns what are your benchmarks what's the performance outcomes have you seen switching between people's behavior when the overwhelming number of people who join your fund in the first place is simply because it's the default fund. And most of them have come up with no data or evidence for the value in the investments um, or the expenditure that they've um, engaged with. So I think there's big questions about the, the validity and the justification for a lot of money uh, that it's being spent. But there's another bigger concern around um, how much accountability the super funds want on how they're spending your money. We ask questions, remember that the super funds come to the Parliament of Australia to say, we want members, we want money to be taken out of Australians' wages and to be compulsorily given over to us to use and to invest for their future. And as the Parliament, I think we have a reasonable expectation to turn around and say, on that basis, you have a responsibility to answer questions to the Parliament about how that money is being spent or where it's being directed appropriately. And what we're finding consistently is that they're not prepared to provide that information. Now, some are, some are not, but there are plenty that are not or they're sending them off. Uh, for instance, the industry super funds have a body called IFM Investors, which is the sort of super fund of super funds. Um, and uh, once we ask questions of them, they've largely been unwilling to provide information to the parliament saying we're no longer a super fund, we just invest people's money. Uh, and so we sit outside of the accountability mechanisms that uh, should be applied to superannuation funds. And I think that's enormously problematic because we see more and more money going to unlisted assets. Now, there's nothing wrong with investing in unlisted assets at all, uh, but we need to have clarity and confidence in their valuations, least because uh, it goes to the financial stability of the nation, not just within the superannuation system. Uh, but then, of course, uh, because so many of the claims made by funds about their performance are anchored in, 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 uh, in unlisted assets because when it comes to equities, there's a lot of comparability between um, all different types within the system uh, that we need to have sure those claims are credible. Uh, and that has not been provided to us on many occasions on the basis that the information is secretive. That's what in part the Your Super, Your Future legislation is seeking to address. How do we inject transparency in the system to verify claims, to make sure that there's genuine competition uh, in the marketplace, but also that money isn't frivolously wasted on things like boxes at tennis and those sorts of things, which within certain constraints, you know, every any uh, product that operates in a competitive market can have value, but where is the return on the, in, on the uh, for the fund member associated with those decisions? Mr. Eslake, as an economist, um, can you do you think that these super funds are spending this money wisely on marketing and things like sports sponsorships? 
It's hard for me to judge, Stuart, and to be honest with you, this is not a matter to which I've devoted a great deal of attention. I, I can understand why it's a political issue for members of parliament, but I'm not one of those and it's not something I've turned my mind to a lot. What I would observe, however, is harking back to the exchange we had earlier in this conversation about um, the superannuation fund spending members' money which they compulsorily acquire on marketing, and Tim said that, uh, well, governments are able to do that legitimately because we occasionally get a chance to vote on them. Uh, you know, that's fine if you live in a marginal electorate, which I never have in my life. You know, my vote doesn't really count in that respect. If I lived in Tim's electorate, my vote probably wouldn't count. It didn't count when I lived in the adjoining one um, because, you know, they're, they're safe seats and my vote doesn't count. But uh, even taking his point that at least we do, as a people as a whole, have the opportunity to throw out governments who behave in ways that we don't like, um, Tim didn't mention the other group to which I referred, which was health insurance funds. Now, you know, uh, contributions to health insurance funds are de facto compulsory in the sense that if you uh, earn more than what's well, not a very high amount and don't join up with a private health insurance fund, the government takes an extra percentage point or more of your income in tax via a larger Medicare levy. Yet health insurance funds spend enormous amounts of money marketing what's a de facto compulsory product. They sponsor things. They put their fees up every year by amounts that consistently exceed the CPI and the government pretends to be regulating it, but it certainly doesn't do anything to cap the fees that uh, health insurance funds charge, whereas at least the, the amount that uh, super funds take out of your income is fixed in percentage terms, um, and yet no one is doing anything. Uh, no one in the government is saying that there ought to be greater accountability by health insurance funds for what they do with their members' money. And, you know, no one is talking about reforming the product which they offer. I've thought for almost all my life that I've been a member of a health insurance fund that it's a lousy product, you know, that they're unlike any other insurance uh, scheme. There's no such thing as a no-claim bonus. I don't get a discount for being a non-smoker or a moderate drinker. Um, because I have two children, I have to pay the same premium as someone who has six children. You wouldn't sell car insurance, for example, on the basis that the amount you pay by way of premiums is independent of the number of cars that are covered by the policy or is independent of how often you've been booked for drunk driving or for speeding and that sort of thing. And yet, you know, yeah, there are all sorts of reforms that could and should be made to um, health insurance, which is no less compulsory really for most people than superannuation. So uh, I suppose uh, my response would be uh, all of this would be more credible if there was a bit of consistency across the spectrum. All right, moving back to, to superannuation specifically though, I'd, I'd, also, I'd, I'd like to talk about the ESG space and carbon risk. Now, many funds are pushing forward with the Paris Agreement of being carbon neutral by 2030. If they don't, there may be legal implications and members certainly seem to be choosing their funds based on consideration of climate change and, and those sort of issues. Now, in contrast, the Australian government hasn't agreed to targets. What can the government do to guide the superannuation through this minefield of fiduciary duty and carbon risk? Um, I think, Mr Wilson, can you, can you start us off on that one? Well, politely, I'll correct you and say, actually, the government has agreed to a target. For the past three elections, we took a target of 26 28% of, um, uh, by 2030. And the government has also committed under the Paris Agreement to uh, net zero by the second half of 
or in during the second half of this century that what hasn't been agreed to is the final date for that, but most people are operating off a broad benchmark of about 2050. Fair so uh, there are actually targets in place, but ultimately these are decisions for uh, uh, companies to make and investors to make based on their risk profile about where they think is going ahead because, of course, they're not just making investment decisions based on what's happening in Australia, but increasingly we're seeing superannuation funds invest overseas. They will, of course, have their own domestic policies and that is the only basis in which international benchmarks are ever entrenched uh, into domestic uh, laws. So uh, there's nothing wrong with factoring these um, risk profiles in based on domestic legislation. Of course, a risk exposure. I just finished a course um, at Cambridge uh, on uh, the path to net zero, particularly uh, around the role of capital and its influence. And it's clearly a big factor, not just in terms of uh, the decision making around risk profiles, but also in terms of transparency uh, in uh, uh, that's being injected in the marketplace around the long term sustainability of investment risks. But um, that will be heavily influenced by individual policies in different countries uh, and, of course, how they choose to take their international um, uh, commitments through to domestic law. And, of course, um, that means that in some countries there'll be very strong measures in place, in other ones there'll be weaker ones. In some countries uh, there may be very low confidence even if there are commitments because there are plenty of countries that have made big commitments around what they're going to do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but you've got to read the fine print. A classic example, of course, is New Zealand, which has said we're going to commit to net zero by 2050, but we're just going to exclude uh, the section of the economy that has its largest emissions profile um, being agriculture. So uh, this is going to be one that's going to be very difficult for people sometimes to assess risk, but it's going to be very critical, particularly for long-term investments for uh, financial services firms into the future. Okay, gentlemen, we've definitely run out of time, but um, one, I think we've got a little bit of um, a couple of minutes left. If um, Mr. Reslake, have you got any final comments you'd like to make? Yeah, I, I suppose I'd only hark back to the subject that we were discussing in the first half of this conversation about the balance between acquiring a home and saving for retirement. And, you know, I agree with Tim that both of them are important and that it would be a very good thing if we were able to find ways of arresting the very serious decline in home ownership rates that's occurred over the last 50 years. I'd be more relaxed about the proposal that I think Tim is putting to allow people greater choices to where they put their spare dollars in their early years, in the early years of their working lives, if I could be confident that were that to happen, governments actually would step back from all the other ways in which they inflate the demand for housing. And by that, I mean not only first homeowner grants, boosts and whatever else they're called and stamp duty concessions, but also the panoply of measures that governments have in place to boost the demand for second, third, fourth and fifth homes through negative gearing and through what I think is an excessively generous capital gains tax treatment. Now, in saying that, I'm certainly not advocating that Australia replicate what New Zealand did a couple of months ago, which I think is going way too far in denying interest as a deduction, not only against wage and salary income, but against rental income from properties and imposing capital gains tax, although they pretend that they don't have one. They use this phrase called a bright line test, but in effect in New Zealand, 
capital gains on investment properties held for less than 10 years are going to be taxed at full marginal rates with no allowance for inflation. Now, that's going way too far. But um, unless, and I just, and, and history, I think, backs me up in this, is I just simply wouldn't trust a government to say, here, we will let people put more of their savings into housing in the early parts of their working lives, get that through the parliament, and then do nothing to unwind all the other things that uh, have been in place for decades in many cases that serve to inflate the demand for housing, unless this was all part of a comprehensive package to totally reset the way in which governments influence the demand for and supply of housing, my fear would be that it would just be another mechanism of inflating the existing stock of housing. And what this really kind of boils down to, in my view, is the fundamental problem in Australian housing policy, which is that for all that, you know, members of parliament on both sides and others uh, engaging, wailing and gnashing of teeth or wringing of hands about the difficulties facing young people getting into home ownership. The reality is that in any given year, there are only about 100,000 of them on average, and they want governments to do things that restrain the rate of increase in house prices. But as soon as they succeed in their aspirations, the, they join the 11 million or more other Australians who already own at least one property. The last thing those 11 million Australians want governments to do is anything that slows the rate of of increase in house prices. You know, John Howard used to say that no one came up to him on his walks saying, please, Prime Minister, do something that will slow the rate of appreciation of the value of my house so that my kids can afford to move out of my house into one that they own themselves. And, you know, the reality is there are 100,000 votes a year in doing things that restrain increases in house prices as opposed to 11 million votes uh, in, in favour of keeping doing things that keep house inflate, price inflation going up, um, yeah, I sometimes say, and I'm not uh, including Tim in this category, even the dumbest of our politicians can do that math. I mean, Tim is certainly not in that category, but uh, like all of them, I suspect uh, on both sides of the political divide, they do that math, that for all the expressed concern about declining home ownership and that sort of thing, you know, no government, no political party is prepared to do anything that stems the rapid rate of increase in house prices because more than half the electorate loves it. Mr Wilson, well, well, it's definitely, say, definitely up to you to respond to that. Yeah, no, no, can I say that I've clearly, according to Sol, um, politely, I probably am um, one of uh, the people in that category because I've said quite publicly that I'd like to slow the growth in the price of housing. I don't think it actually advantages the country and look for what it's worth. Since a small plug, last year I wrote a whole book called The New Social Contract, Renewing the Liberal Vision, which was precisely on this point. But the problem I'm raising in, in that book and, and I've raised in part in the conversation today is what we're doing is creating a completely structurally imbalanced society where, and, and you can go through this if you want to, uh, I've got all the sources in the book, but basically we now have a system where those who hold the most wealth um, uh uh, pay the least tax uh, and enjoy most of the benefits of the transfer system and that no society can be sustainable that operates uh, on that basis or that assumption because that means that those with the least wealth are um, uh, paying the most tax or certainly contributing a significantly higher share uh, of the tax system uh, and are getting some of the lesser benefits of the transfer system. And what we're creating is an intergenerational equity. Within two to three cycles or generations, we will have people's futures determined 
based on the decisions of their parents. Now, not only do I think that's a very bad thing because that was goes to the heart of the foundation of the country that was established in its modern sense around the democratic ownership of the nation, I think it goes to the core of our national identity. I think it's very important. Um, but it uh, it also means, said, you know, people's futures will be determined by the decisions of their parents and we've got to break that cycle and get it back to more of one that's based on uh, people having a sense of ownership of their nation because that actually is the basis as much as anything else, and I don't mean this in a partisan sense, though obviously it has a flow-through, which is the basis of Australian liberalism around yeah. um, having a sense of ownership of their country and a sense of responsibility, and the more people rent and the more people don't feel empowered, the more likely they are um, to want a culture of dependence and expectation from government. And I think that's a very bad thing. Yeah, agree with that. Gentlemen. Good. <laughs> I think that's a, a very positive note to um, to finish on. Thank you again very, very much for your time. We uh, much appreciate it. And um, I think that was a, a very helpful and interesting discussion. So thank you again. <laughs>